Thank you, sir. If I may, I'd like to uh, take a moment and offer up thanks uh, that not only have I had this opportunity to serve you, but we are at the beginning of Holy Week. So with that, dear Lord, we gather here in fellowship and in faith to celebrate your entrance into Jerusalem and the beginning of your final days among us. And with that, we humbly ask that you can open up our hearts and our minds that we can experience, as you did, not just the light, but the darkness that makes the light so brilliant. Thank you for inviting us together. Thank you for this fellowship. And thank you for this opportunity to serve. Amen. Okay. Uh, hopefully everybody has a copy of the handout. Um, this is the finale where everything gets explained. It's kind of like the last episode of Lost, if you are into serial television. Um, and if you saw the email or if you've glanced at the uh, handout, you know that it is chiefly about one person who will be introduced about halfway through, and his name is uh, Reverend Richard Howard, otherwise known as uh, Provost Howard. But before we get to him, we have to set up the scene, which is England in the Midlands, a small town called Coventry. So Coventry, as those of you who, who know anything about England, uh, it is north and west of London. Um, it is an industrial town that dates back well before the Domesday Book. And beginning in 17, actually beginning in the 11th century, the then Catholic parish of St. Michael was created. And beginning in the 1300s, 1370s, that a new parish church was erected. It took them over 100 years to finish it. They wrapped in essentially the year 1500, and it was called uh, St. Michael's. And it was just a parish church, although it was the largest parish church in all of England, with the third tallest spire of any church in England, even today. So, yeah, uh, the spire is 303 feet tall, the sanctuary is essentially 300 feet, and it's one of the few churches that you'll find in England that's not built on a crucifix form. And I want you to get to know this church because it's uh, as important a character as Reverend Howard will be. So, as we get to the latter half of the 19th century, um, the fine folks of Coventry, uh, who have several large churches, this one being the biggest, uh, would wish that once again, after a 400-year hiatus from the time of King Henry VIII, that they once again will be the seat of a bishopric, that they would have a bishop's cathedral. So in the late, 1900, late 1800s, they uh, did some renovations, uh, including putting a new roof and such, and supports on their wonderful 600-year-old sanctuary of St. Michael's. So some of these schematics date from 1880s as they were preparing to do work in the 1890s. Um, but th this gives you a, a sense of the layout of St. Michael's. And this is taken from one of the neighboring towers looking down at uh, a portion of St. Michael's in the 1880s. Now, Andrew, can you take a question? Of course. Come on in, the water's fine. The, uh, 
St. Michael's predates the Anglican Church. Correct, correct. So by the time we're in the late 19th century that you're referring to, and they want to have a, a bishop established there, are we, are we talking about Anglicans at that point? Oh, yes. or from, from, the Catholics. Time of, okay. from the time of King Henry VIII, it, it is an Anglican church. And it's been that ever since? Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. Uh, it, it was, uh, in the dissolution, it stayed a church. O other churches there that were more Catholic, I suppose, got turned to rubble. Uh, but something about this one with its uh, ascendant spire, uh, it didn't fall to the axe, as it were. But uh, the town of Coventry, even uh, up until around the turn of the 20th century, it had a very medieval quality to it. It was compact, it had a lot of Tudor-style uh, houses all next to each other, and the church, as large as it is, um, was truly part of this hodgepodge concentration of buildings in the town center of Coventry. So again, um, as we are getting to the close of the 19th century, um, because people were taking pride in this property and upgrading it with the aspiration of convincing the Archbishop of Canterbury to award a bishop's seat to this parish. Uh, these are some of the details that, that they did then. So this is the interior to give you a sense of the grandeur. Again, some of the architectural uh, finery. Okay, 1900, it's still very narrow streets there in the town center, but the Industrial Revolution has come to Coventry in the Midlands, and rather than today with uh, elbow room on the outskirts, uh, small shops opened hodgepodge next to each other, next to businesses or residences or churches, so everything uh, was next to or on top of each other in this lovely, quaint, medieval, uh, historic town. So this is uh, 1910. In a few years' time, in 1918, which will pass by in a moment, um, that Coventry and St. Michael's celebrated with uh, being awarded a bishop's seat. So from 1918 on, um, there is a bishop who calls that home. So 1917, World War I is happening, and part of the industry that uh, puts Coventry on the map um, in terms of growth is armaments, munitions, bicycles first, and then automobiles. And so the bicycles and automobile factories are retooled uh, during World War I to help with the armament, the war effort. This comes into play later in 20 years' time because they will be a target. So uh, 1918 was when Coventry becomes a cathedral the building is still the same, still 303-foot-tall uh, spire with a 296-foot transept, uh, but now it officially is the Coventry Cathedral, still affectionately known as St. Michael's. And these are a few shots of the interior from 1936. And as mentioned, um, Coventry uh, was home to a lot of light and some heavy industry and all of it was intermixed with residences uh, in and around the town center. So from 1934 on, England sensed the war was coming and it was inevitable that it would have to defend itself. And so even before 
the official outbreak of hostilities uh, with war declared in September 1739, Britain against Germany, that the uh, auto industry and such in Coventry was geared toward uh, helping to produce uh, light uh, military vehicles and airplanes. Now, the first of these, the, the bottom one, is actually from 1934. The top one on the right is from 1940. These are but a smattering of the German propaganda posters from the period even before war has been declared against Britain, where the Third Reich is warning its citizens against the dangers of air assault. A uh, bit of irony, considering what is going to happen very soon. So, September 39 was when war is declared between England and Germany, among other powers. By, the, by June of 1940, um, Hitler has assigned uh, his Luftwaffe, his air force, to try and take out Britain's air uh, power because uh, he wants to deal with, he wants to see if he can invade um, and deal with Britain before he has to tackle Russia, which he thinks is the larger threat to his power. So beginning in June of 1940 and coming to a, a, a high point, if you will, in the middle of September of 1940, that the Luftwaffe almost daily is doing sorties and bombing runs, first over London and then other areas of Britain, chiefly ports and industrial towns, but uh, with the Blitz in London and then what's to follow in Coventry, um, there was an element of trying to induce terror. So as the Fuhrer proclaims in September of 1940 that he will meet exponentially any attacks against Germany with uh, a thousandfold against Britain. And what do you know, on the night of ni uh, November 14th, 1940, that the Luftwaffe sends over 500 planes, 449 of them actually get there to drop their ordnance over Coventry. And what had been a medieval town is in a relative instant, in 11 hours and change of near constant bombardment, um, where the planes actually have time to go back to France, which is occupied, get fresh bombs and return to fly and drop them over Coventry, that the medieval town of Tudor wood, wood structure uh, buildings goes up in uh, flame and smoke. Now, here's a, a little recap of what happens on the evening of September, um, November 14th and morning of November 15th. And again, this is just to give you a sense of the scale of what happens uh, across the uh, 12 hours or so that Coventry is bombed. So over 500 tons, 503 tons, the Germans were fant fanatic about keeping records on these things, um, were dropped and the, the net result was over 4,000 homes lost, over 50,000 homes uh, damaged, 
75% of the factories in Coventry gone, a number of the churches, including, you guessed it, St. Michael's. So come the morning of September, uh, November 15th, it was a strange landscape that those who woke up, well, not that they slept much, um, were greeted with. Uh, altogether, the confirmed casualties are 568 with several hundred unknown. Uh, injured were a thousand more above that. And these are some of the testimonials from those people who lived through what most people can't even imagine. And again, all this in metaphor is akin to what we are going to be experiencing this week in terms of these folks, they, they knew that their world was turned upside down and they did not know that there would be an end to what was happening to them. They did not know, uh, even if the sun came up or when the sun came up, if it would stop because there was no air defense at this time for Coventry. Uh, they had a few anti-aircraft guns which did nothing and for reasons unclear, the uh, Royal Air Force did not mount much of a defense. So it was a, a punishing night of incendiary bombs that turned their world upside down and inside out. So I'm going to share with you a little bit of what Dick Howard had to say. Now, in the Anglican Church, in the Church of England, they love titles and hierarchies. And so in 1918, Coventry has become a bishopric, and there is a bishop who oversees the greater Coventry area. For the cathedral proper, uh, there are a number of priests, Anglican priests, who serve there, and the top one is the provost, and his name is Dick Howard. And uh, he has come to Coventry um, in 1933, so he's been the provost of the cathedral there se uh, for seven years when the Blitz comes to Coventry. Now, even as London had experienced throughout September and even a little bit into October of 1940, had experienced the Battle of Britain and the Blitz, that it was never as concentrated, never as many Luftwaffe bombers over London at the same time as there were this one night over Coventry. And because Coventry was concentrated, whereas London is a very spread out city, that the <coughs> effect was that much more devastating.
So whether it's the New York Times or some of the London papers, these were the headlines actually two days later because nobody could get news out on the, the morning following the bombing. When I came across this woman's testimony, it hit home because we always think of church as sanctuary, and here there was an action, actually an air raid shelter in one of the vaults beneath one of the crypts. And it was her neighborhood air, air raid shelter, and she went there seeking sanctuary. At the time, she was 12 or 13. And the cathedral came down on her head. It was so searingly hot that night and the following morning with the fires burning that even walking in the center of the street you could feel the heat through your shoes, according to folks. Okie doke. So on the I'm going to read what Dick Howard, the provost and the ultimate hero of th this week's chapter, uh, what he had to write a few days later. On the night of the 14th of November, the cathedral roof was slippery and shone white under our feet, for there was frost and the bright light of the full moon was reflected on the lead, it was a lead roof. The guard that night consisted of Jock Forbes, who was a stonemason, age 65, myself, 56 years old, and two young men in their early 20s. Shortly after 7 p.m., the siren sounded, and a little more than five minutes later, we heard the raiders overhead. Soon the bombs started, and the horizon ringed with a huge semicircle of light that showed scores of incendiaries falling. More and more showered down nearer and nearer the cathedral. Within a minute of igniting, they exploded with a loud report. Then towards 8 p.m., the first incendiary struck the cathedral. One fell on the roof of the chancel toward the east end. Another fell right through to the floor between pews at the head of the nave near the lectern. Another struck the roof of the south aisle above the organ. By shouting from the battlements to the police station, the alarm for calling the fire brigade was given immediately. The bomb on the chancel was smothered with sand and thrown over the battlements. The bomb on the pews was large and needed two full buckets of sand before it could be shoveled into a container. The bomb above the organ loft had done what we had most feared. It had fallen through the lead roof and was blazing on the oak ceiling below. It took a long time to deal with. The lead roof was hacked open and sand poured through the hole, but the fire had spread out of reach. We stirrup pumped many buckets of water before the fire ceased blazing. Another shower of incendiaries now fell. By this time, we had been working for a long time at extreme pressure, and we were all very tired. Four of the bombs appeared to strike the roof of the Girdler's Chapel above its east end. From below, the fire was seen blazing in the ceiling. Above, on the roof, smoke was pouring from three holes and a fire was blazing through. These were tackled by all four of us at once, but with the failing of our supplies of sand, water, and physical strength, we were unable to make an impression. The fire gained ground, and finally we had to give in. What love, great courage, and almost madness to stand on a sloping icy roof in an air raid. So... Mighty as he and the others tried, since there was no water pressure, um, even when the uh, fire brigade did arrive, there was nothing they could do except try and pull some of 
the most valuables that they could out before the fire brought down the whole affair, which it did by midnight. So, even as this is a church, and even as I've just read something from an Anglican cleric, why? Why am I sharing all this? Well, because on the morning of November 15th, as his cathedral is smoking, roof having come down, brought the tops of the walls with it, he picks up a charred piece of timber and writes, Father, forgive, on one of the walls. And when he was questioned about it later um, by somebody who said, Father, forgive them, as in Luke um, and the final words of, of Jesus in that gospel, um, he replied, no, that we are all in need of forgiveness. And with that became a clarion countercall that 56-year-old Richard Howard took up and for the next 20 plus years championed in a unique way even as the tide of war called for vengeance. So here, amidst the rubble, and what do you know that two of the smaller beams, what was left of them, uh, where they'd intersected, uh, they were still joined and I think there's a shot that I found that was taken from the still standings uh, tower that they formed a perfect cross. And the stonemason who had helped try to preserve the, the cathedral and fought the fires on the rooftop, um, he hoisted up the still joined timbers and placed it at the altar. And the original is still uh, there in the new sanctuary built, which we'll see in a little bit. But on the day after this great raid that has killed 568 known neighbors and left 40, 50,000 people homeless, that the provost of the cathedral can make a petition for reconciliation and peace and atonement not just for those who had caused this, but for each and every one of us. And his stonemason um, erected a cross. So, amazingly, the 303-foot tower <coughs> still stood, and it still stands today. And two days after the bombing, so the morning, the day after Provost Howard had written Father Forgive with charcoal. King George VI of the King's Speech fame came to survey what had happened. It wasn't the first time that someplace outside of London had been bombed, but it was the most severe that any British city had endured, and in fact, um, except cumulatively for London, it was the worst that any city would endure during World War II. So, 
On the bottom right is a photo of two gentlemen, the, the taller gentleman in the black frock with the white collar, that is Richard Howard, otherwise known as Dick Howard, the provost, the Anglican priest. And in several of the photos that we'll see uh, along now, uh, that he's there with the dignitaries walking them around um, the, the rubble inside the blackened uh, walls of the sanctuary, which still stood. So, that was November 16th, the raid having been November 14th and the 15th. On the 20th of November, for the first time in hundreds of years in Britain, they have a mass grave and 176 residents of Coventry whose remains have been found by this point were buried at once. I believe on the, the handout there's something from the Bishop of Coventry, Mervyn Hage, Hate, yeah, um, he lost his composure, understandably. Um, it was a mixture of uh, Catholic rites and Church of England rites, abbreviated, but he was overwhelmed. And for the rest of his career, um, even after he left Coventry, he couldn't shake it. And at times, uh, he was uh, a fierce advocate of retribution and giving back to those um, who'd done this to his city, um, exactly what they deserved, and at other times, um, he questioned the Allied non-military targets that uh, the RAF most especially seemed to go for. So, a couple of the headlines that uh, spoke to this burial of, I'm sorry, 172. Um, First time since the Great Plague that Britons felt the need to bury with ceremony, but together. Um, and actually, they had another mass burial a few days after that. It was even larger, and they ran out of coffins. So this is the atmosphere of pain of absolute bereft suffering that these people are contending with. And one of their spiritual leaders, the head of the cathedral, in the middle of this, he finds a prayer for forgiveness, which these days is now etched into the stone at the at the altar area of the open-skied cathedral ruins. It's still sacred ground, and uh, they still have uh, services held there. On the bottom, there's a visit from Princess Elizabeth at the time. Meanwhile, on the right is Winston Churchill, the prime minister then coming, and in each of them, Dick Howard, the provost, is leading the uh, entourage of dignitaries. And in all this, he begins to articulate 
a vision for what Coventry could be, that uh, in some fashion he vows that uh, these stones will be heard, but not cries of vengeance, but uh, cries of atonement and reconciliation. And in fact, um, when there's a fund created to build the new cathedral at Coventry that the then Queen Elizabeth, she ascended to the throne by then, um, that she and her husband Philip donate 500 pounds to that effort. Meanwhile, the war has continued and President Franklin Delano Roosevelt passes away in uh, early, mid-April of 1945 and there's a memorial service held within the sanctuary walls um, and there's an honor guard of American GIs outside firing a 21-gun salute. And in one of his final official functions before he passes away, King George VI and his queen Elizabeth, later the queen mom, um, are there for, I forget the ceremony that they uh, attended, but they came up to Coventry for that. So today, Coventry is a place of remembrance. The tower still stands. As a visitor, that's where you enter. You can pay a few quid and go up the tower and look down at um, either the ruins or the rest of the city, which is still pretty uh, horizontal, not very vertical. Um, and then you can enter the sacred space that is uh, the interior of what had been the sanctuary. And this is an, an all-weather reproduction of the original charred cross of two beams that the stonemason found on the morning of November 15, 1940. The original is next door in the uh, new cathedral. Um, this sits in the open air with the message behind it of a plea. So two things uh, are legacies of what Provost Howard did. And he served there until 1958, 25 straight years. Um, the Cross of Nails, which has been a metaphor, uh, has been a, a visual motif in all of the literature that's gone out, including these handouts. Cross of Nails, uh, actually three medieval nails that were found, again, in the days after uh, the cathedral burned. Uh, one of the clerics from the Coventry uh, area was kicking some of the debris and he found these gigantic 18 inch and longer nails, which were individually hammered by uh, iron tongs and, and hammers blacksmiths, and he took a, a bundle of them home and was playing with them, and uh, was struck by how a cross could be formed, and he bound it up with wire, ultimately took it to a, a local silversmith um, to coat the original, um, which again is in the sanctuary for, or the, the new cathedral sanctuary, um, but the cross of nails is now an international uh, affiliate, affiliation of religious and non-religious uh, groups that 
uh, seek peace and understanding between nations and peoples. And I believe at last count, there's over 250 chapters uh, worldwide in 60-some countries. And the website is, is there on the handout uh, to look for more information. Uh, now, even as Reverend Howard had a vision, it didn't mean that everybody caught into it, certainly not immediately. But on Christmas Day, 1940, so five and a half weeks after the city is all but erased from the map and his cathedral is left a smoking ruin, on Christmas Day, he was the featured speaker on the BBC broadcast, which was done from the inside of a very cold and roofless Coventry Cathedral. And some of the, the text of what he had to say that day is there on the handout, where he, he spoke to Britain and the world to ask that we not operate out of revenge, but we seek uh, ways to understand uh, and love our brothers even when it's hardest. And what do you know? That in the waning days of World War II in 1945, that a German city, Dresden, uh, was likewise um, the recipient of a night of terror, um, in this case, the Allied forces. But somehow, by 1946, the, uh, the Provost Howard had reached out across all of that pain after five, six years of war for Britain and um, made an overture to the chief Roman Catholic uh, priests in Dresden and also in Hamburg to ask if they might consider uh, sharing in prayer. And so with both Dresden and then Hamburg, that replicas of the Cross of Nails were part of the exchange that, lent, that, lent, excuse me, that then built bridges of friendship between nations and peoples that most recently had been a, at each other's throats. Didn't save the 40 or so thousand people who reportedly died in Dresden, but it did allow for an opportunity uh, to try and come together afterwards. So today, on the left, you'll see the you'll see the uh, open sky remains of the Coventry Cathedral. Meanwhile, on the right is the new sanctuary, which is a much more modern affair. Uh, the two are physically linked. Um, they are both still consecrated ground. Um, And <laughs> curiously, that one of the few things that um, emerged relatively unscathed in the original Coventry Cathedral was the um, tomb, excuse me, the above-ground tomb there of um, the bishop who'd been installed in 1918 when it was when it became Coventry Cathedral. Um, on the left-hand side is uh, some of the glasswork artistry on the new cathedral with the old one reflected in it. And again, um, there at the head of the open-air sanctuary is the plaintive plea 
asking, you know, asking the Father's blessing um, upon us for all of our sins of omission and commission. Now, there's a host more that um, uh, we could explore, um, but for me, even more than any of the fantastic human beings that have been highlighted in the last four weeks, that Reverend Richard Howard stands out because unlike the gentleman who in week one um, helped rescue Austrian Jews or, or uh, German Jews, um, they were all protected in, in ways, uh, whether it was diplomatic immunity, their citizenship, um, American citizenship, or um, their clerical collar, or both. Um, and while they were transgressing against the, the power structure um, of the day and age, they had a get-out-of-jail-free get card, mostly. Um, the, the sensitive and uh, caring Quakers and Mennonites who originally fought, beginning in the 1688 era, against human slavery, against black slavery, that for them it was a matter of principle, it wasn't front and center, it wasn't uh, something visceral for them, even for President Lincoln. For him, in his second inaugural address, to offer magnanimity to um, the citizens who were defeated, to offer up binding their wounds, he was doing it from a position of strength. By that point, the war was nearly won. And so as fantastic and beautiful as his language was and the emotion behind it, that unlike Reverend Howard, that Lincoln or the Johnson brothers who wrote Lift Every Voice and Sing, that he was in the middle of a firestorm and his opinion, his belief, his living of his faith was contrary to the prevailing winds of a desire to uh, get the pound of flesh for the many pounds of flesh that were lost on November 14th and 15th. So the fact that uh, enduring today at uh, Coventry there is a ministry of reconciliation and unity. Uh, there's also the Cross of Nails organization um, and there is the message there at the altar. So He's one of my heroes, and very few times in my life am I speechless. As long as I might take to say something, there's very few times that I've ever been speechless. And there's even fewer times that I have been physically brought to my knees by the power of something. And to enter into that sacred space and not know uh, of the message that was waiting there at the altar. And to encounter it in that totality, in the setting, to appreciate uh, the, the pain that Reverend Howard, um, the pain of loss, firsthand and uh, empathetic that he had, and for him to put that forward in a moment of great darkness, um, to me, is a revelation. and. I wept openly and copiously, and today, 20 years later, I still 
reckon with it. I still wrestle with it because I don't know, you know, whether it's here at CPC or, or any place else uh, to which I've been attached, that I don't know if I could ask for, for that same level of, of forgiveness um, when, when the soul cries out for uh, payback. So, any thoughts or questions? Yes, Jim. Andrew, you've uh, once again given us more than we ordinarily would get to learn about a, a particular subject. In June of 1968, I was a U.S. Navy sailor serving in Holy Lock, Scotland. I spent the worst part of the Vietnam War in Scotland, of all places. And the last family vacation that I took with the nuclear family I was born into, my father, mother, brother, and sister, was a two-week leave that I took, and they came over, and we traveled around Scotland and England um, in, a, in a rental car. And we found ourselves in Coventry one day. My father had planned that. And I would completely agree with you as far as the effect that, that the bombed-out cathedral has on a person. And we saw that and experienced that. And I remember the, the cross and the, and the Father forgive words that were in the wall. And we saw the new cathedral. There are a few other places I've been in my life that have had a similar effect. Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Washington, D.C. in Arlington Cemetery has affected me profoundly when I've been there four or five times in my life. Auschwitz had that effect on me, where, where these uh, statements that we humans can make in the, in the midst of despair uh, can have a, a, a lasting effect, far more lasting than Bishop Howard thought probably when he made those humble words scratched upon the wall. But again, thank you for bringing information to us that, that most of us didn't know. We know about Coventry Cathedral, but we didn't know the rest of the story. Thank you. I, too, appreciate the... Uh, the spiritual aspects of what you were delivering. But as I was sitting there, I'm thinking, uh, Coventry died, there were 250 dead and 1,000 probably were wounded, probably most of them died. And then we uh, go back on Dresden and there's 40,000 of them are wiped out with a bombing overnight. And then it only takes man four more years to develop an atomic bomb that in an instant makes a, cavity of a city and kills 140,000 people plus countless disease, radiation diseases that came after that. And then a few years later, we develop a hydrogen bomb, which would make th that atomic bomb look like child's play. So uh, man just has an amazing ability to destroy himself. It's, uh, where does it end? Well, to, to me, it ends when, when more people with their conscience stand up as Reverend Howard did and go against the orthodoxy of the age. Um, I, I didn't include it, um, but in 1941, for several months, uh, the Prime Minister of Australia was touring 
England, Ireland, and trying to build up uh, trade and also prepare for the uh, coming war that he suspected would be happening in the Pacific. Um, and his diaries are pretty revealing of the people that he met with, whether it was de Valera in Ireland or most especially Churchill in Britain. Technically. And um, to your question, Churchill was strangely comfortable with the calculus of human loss that, uh, and it was something which this Prime Minister from Australia could not, could not reckon with even as he understood where Prime Minister Churchill was coming from that there's acceptable losses and whether it's collateral damage or whether it's payback that for Churchill it was very mathematical. Um, and that for the Australian Prime Minister that he couldn't, he couldn't detach himself from the human cost and the, the widows or the, the orphans that the ship sunk in the Atlantic or you know, the conflicts there on the, on the continent caused. And it, it was interesting to behold this, this elected man of office who was preparing, trying to prepare his own nation for what he feared was going to be engulfment in, in a now a global conflict, um, that he was not comfortable with uh, the, the tactical realities of war that, that somebody like Churchill was. Um, actually, you had your hand up first. Oh, I, I, two quick things. Sure. I wasn't clear. Who did you say couldn't shake, uh, vacillated for 25 years over whether there was, they, that wasn't Howard. You said someone vacillated. Oh, oh. Right. Um, no, it, it was his boss, the Bishop of Coventry, uh, was a gentleman named uh, Mervyn Haight. Um, I believe it's, it's, it's on there. And um, initially, he was so overcome by the, the sheer scale of, uh, of the loss that uh, he, wanted, he wanted for Britain to exact that and more. And the and other thing that came to my mind was right after the Trade Towers tragedy, there were people who, in this country, who were saying, you know, we, we're not totally blameless here. We need to ask for forgiveness, too. And most of the community, including a lot of the evangelical mm -hmm. you know, uh, community, which just was irate with them that they mm -hmm. would even consider that this could at all be, that we could at all be culpable or that we would need forgiveness. And, that um, and truth be told, where my wife and I moved from, Jersey City, New Jersey is directly opposite Lower Manhattan. And uh, to have a direct line of sight to those events, um, and then to try and consider what Reverend Howard thought, proposed, and acted upon the morning after his own 9-11. Um, I don't know, I, I, I know that, that I couldn't do that, and, and yes, you know, uh, World Trade Center was for nine months. It was a, a deconstruction work in progress. It was sacred ground in its own way. But I, I don't know of anybody who had that capacity in the reactive moment to, to, to pray publicly, as this man did, um, for forgiving, for embracing somebody who would deliver that kind of, of, of hostility towards unsuspecting people. Um, 
Yes, Estelle. I just have a comment. Canton does have a connection with Coventry Cathedral. In 1985, in July, we were traveling in, in um, England, and we were there on one, I don't know if it was a Sunday or what, but the night before, the Canton Civic Opera had done a concert in the new cathedral. Fantastic. Andrew, I want to, <clears throat> I want to, I hear what you just said. You, you don't know anyone that could have had that response. And I think we need to really understand that this is what God's grace is. And that where this speaks to us, I believe, as Christians who want to really understand what Jesus did for us, starting, and we commemorate it starting now, is that each one of us have a responsibility really to be invited into his mercy and accept his grace and forgiveness for who we are so that we're able to live a graceful forgiving life so that all of us have people in our lives we know we have to forgive just to make it through the day and i believe that dr howard had that grace given to him and probably had to forgive a lot of people in his life and this was one more thing that he was able to do that he could forgive and i'd like to say that I could do that because of understanding God's grace in my life. And I think that if you can't say that, that I want to pray for you, that you can understand God's forgiveness so much and that we respond to his forgiveness in our lives that we too can forgive. Because that's the key to who we become as believers and disciples. Amen. And for me, in being given the open invitation uh, from Jim Kettlewell and the Adult Education Committee being given a blank slate and trusting that I would come up with something that was within the framework of the Westminster class and uh, faith-based that all the people who I uh, sought out to highlight over these last five weeks, they are people who I admire because I, I see them and their actions doing what I want to do in my own smaller ways, and should I ever be faced as, you know, with the naked eye 11 years ago, um, how would I, how do I respond, whether it's, you know, the modest day-to-day -day stuff or whether it's the overwhelming things. And I, I, I pray every day to, to find that, that level of grace. Um, and I, I, I offer these men and women up as exemplars that I've identified and that for me are, are you know, heroes um, of spirituality and that they, they demonstrably have, have lived their faith in a way that I, I hope, you know, when everything is, is done in the account ledger of life, um, uh, whether it's St. Paul or, you know, those who remain behind here, that somehow that in my own modest way that I, I too can, you know, fulfill that, that pursuit of grace. while we're waiting for the question. Um, for me, um, darkness is a necessary part of the light. That for those of you 
who remember single-lens reflex cameras or brownies back in the day or anything that actually had film, if you ever worked in a dark room, you understand that if you just have light on the paper, it is undifferentiated and you, you end up with no image whatsoever. Likewise, um, it's only because we have cloud cover, we have things closer to uh, the, the ground where we live that, that screen off some of the sun's brilliance, that it's only through shadow that we understand definition. And for me, in looking at Holy Week, that to appreciate the brilliance of the light come Sunday morning, and I don't just mean the bedazzling you know, image that uh, the Marys saw, but just uh, without metaphor, the, the light that comes on Easter morn, um, that it's only by, by having some appreciation, some value for the shadows, for the, for the dark passage that Christ himself went through and that we, as followers of Christ, need to be appreciative of. Only by, by participating, by grappling with the darkness, does the light have any meaning and also uh, it will, only by, by the shadows will it not blind us. The uh, one question that I had which you were not addressing was, was there ever at any time after the destruction of the original cathedral a tentative plan to rebuild the original structure or was that just out of... Yes, um, there, there, there was intense debate. Um, the, the city, um, and I forget what they call their town council, um, but uh, th they very much wanted uh, it to be replaced as it was, to rebuild, I mean, the, the walls were still there, the tower was still there. Uh, however, Reverend Howard, who was concluding his tenure as the provost, um, he left in 1958, uh, he was one of the strongest um, voices for leaving it as a sacred ruin and then doing a, a world imitational to, uh, uh, you know, request for proposals to architects worldwide um, and then allow them to be inspired to do something in part of the church grounds that were adjacent. And so, uh, as with our own uh, discussions uh, in New York about what to do in those 16 acres downtown, the, there was a, a very visceral um, back and forth between people with competing visions. And one of the challenges today is that the 1962, I think, was when it opened, um, 58, um, the, the new sanctuary is extremely modern. And um, whereas <laughs> one face of it is done in the same quality brick as the original, the, the 14th century remains, um, the, much of the rest of it is, at least the interior is stark. Um, and um, the, the architect who did it went on to great acclaim, and there's people who absolutely love it, and then there's, there's others, myself probably <coughs> being sympathetic to these others, that love the form, of the, the traditional classic Gothic form of the remains, and to have it juxtaposed with something so extremely modern um, that uh, it, it doesn't quite balance aesthetically, but different people respond to it differently. Well, I had seen some of the wonderful cathedrals of Europe, and there's nothing like them here in the United States, really.
but if you go to a place like Barcelona where you're seeing the very modern structures, um, it just makes you shudder. Thank you. <laughs> Couple quick housekeeping notes. There is no class next week on Easter Sunday. Two weeks from today, John David Geib starts a six-week series, and this will be in the church bulletin. You'll be able to read it, those of you that are going to second service. Andrew said a while ago that we need darkness to be able to see the light. At the end of the second service, you will sing the hymn, Go to Dark Gethsemane reflect on what Andrew has just said about the darkness and the light and the contrast of the two. Again, Andrew, we thank you for five inspiring and educational weeks. Be thinking about your next series. <laughs> we thank you.